Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This material is so valuable that it's worth dying for, and we want as much of it as we can get. In this podcast, we're going deep below ground into the belly of a mountainous sea serpent, writhing and wriggling through dangerously claustrophobic tunnels, encountering caverns of cathedral-like dimensions, discovering the drive and determination of our ancient ancestors as they dug the largest prehistoric copper mine in the world. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Last week we travelled to Cornwall and the beginning of the Bronze Age, discovering one of the richest sources of tin in the ancient world. Where are we now? Well, today we're off to find the other metal that the world needed if it was to make bronze. That's the alloy that was powering the new age, the Bronze Age. We're in Clwyd, in North Wales, at the Great Orm, in search of copper. If you're going to make bronze, you need tin and copper. There's just, there's just no ways around it. That's what you need to make a bronze sword. You've got to get your hands on copper and tin in a ratio of about nine times as much copper as you've got tin. It's about nine to one. So we were talking last time about the mining for tin that was going on in Cornwall, down in that peninsula of England that sticks out into the into the Atlantic down there in the southwest. Well, the other half of the equation is the copper. And for the ancient world, what made the British Isles doubly attractive was that they could find copper and tin together in the one set of islands so you could get your you could get tin in cornwall and you could get copper in wales so what we're talking about this time is the copper mining at Llandudno, 
which is right up in the north, on the north coast of, of Wales. For a long time, archaeologists were, were determined and historians were determined that there was no major uh, mining or copper extraction in the British Isles until, until the Romans came. You know, so the, the Romans are in the British Isles from around the time of Jesus Christ onwards. You know, it, it, around there, around the year zero, if you like. The, you know, there's, you know, the Roman contact is there. Uh, and, the, and the belief was that it was them that industrialised the, the, the extraction of, of elements like copper. Uh, so it, it was a huge, huge surprise when much more recently, archaeologists working at Llandudno uh, and, and based on that, on research that they were able to do there, uh, they, they realised that there was what you could justifiably describe as industrial extraction of malachite, which is the ore from which you get copper, at Llandidno 4,000 years ago. Wow. So 2,000 years, really, before the Romans even thought about it, there was large-scale mining for copper in North Wales, whatever they called North Wales. That's one of the fascinations for me all the time, is what, what in ancient times, how people described and referred to these places. You know, we don't have, and we never will have, those names, which is a great, a great loss. But uh, anyway, 4,000 years ago, they were extracting a massive amount of copper. And that's indigenous population. You know, that's the people who are naturally there in that part of the British Isles. You know, it's a homegrown industry. They're extracting copper and they, they must have been doing it for trade reasons because of the sheer volume. It's been calculated that uh, during the, you know, the, the lifetime of, of the mine at Llandudno, something like 1,700 tonnes of malachite was extracted and converted into copper. Now, think about what that actually means. You're talking about maybe 10 million axe heads wow. worth of copper. So it's on that. This isn't people messing about. This isn't just tinkering around the edges. This is a massive exercise. There was copper mining at Llandudno right up into the modern era. In the same place? It, it's all, yeah, it's only relatively recently gone out of business. It was a copper mine right up into the, you know, into modern times. And it was on account of the modern workings that the older workings, the prehistoric workings, had been lost. They were just completely overlooked by the modern, uh, by the modern industry. And it was only when the, when the mine shut down that archaeologists were able to get in amongst it and find where the prehistoric workings had been. And one of the, one of the discoveries was of a chamber that had been created by the, the digging out of Malachi ore th thousands of years ago. It left an empty space, a void. But at some point it had been deliberately backfilled with rock, rubble. So this, the space was filled up. Well, archaeologists painstakingly emptied that chamber back out again. And when they got it emptied, they discovered that what they had was the largest man-made underground chamber anywhere on planet Earth. The hole that had been left behind as just part of those prehistoric copper mining works was the largest hole made by human beings underground anywhere on planet Earth. It's a truly vast space, and you can walk into that. And remember, it's dug out by people using stone and bone. 
You know, they were mining, uh, digging into the, the ore using uh, animal bones and stones. Those were their tools. That must have been incredible hard work. Oh, uh, it doesn't bear thinking about it. Uh, the, as well as the big chamber, uh, archaeologists have emptied out a few hundred yards, a few hundred metres of the, the tunnels that were created by the digging. You know, if you imagine people burrowing into the Malachite ore, just following it wherever it went, and, and pushing it out behind them like moles or badgers digging, and archaeologists have, have emptied out a few hundred metres of these tunnels. But it's estimated that there's something like at least five miles of tunnels, prehistoric mining at Clandidno. So all that's been excavated so far is between about three and five percent of what's actually there. And some of this, some of the tunnels are sort of big enough to, you know, walk in sort of bent, bent double, you know, bent right over like a half shut knife. And then you get into other places where you're kind of down on your knees, you know, crawling through. And then finally, it comes down to spaces that in some cases are so confined and confining, little little twisting tunnels, that they can only reasonably have been excavated by children. They're so small. So the prehistoric miners must have been using their children to get into some of the more confined spaces. And you have to, I mean, when you talk about the work involved, you have to think about, it, it's one thing to go into a tunnel that's there, that you can get through and out the other side, and or into a chamber, but these people, when they were mining, and some of them are children, are up against a, a dead end because they're working into the rock. So they must have gone down as, as far as had already been opened up, probably with a little lamp, maybe, with you know made of animal fat or something. And then they'd be right up against the face and they were digging this out with bone and stone and maybe people working behind them, you know, scraping that material out and taking it back up to the surface. Some people have even speculated that it, it may have been dangerous to work with a lamp down there because a burning lamp is using up some of the oxygen, you know, because you're in a confined space. So horror of horrors, you might have had people and children working down there in the dark, in the total darkness, extracting the malachite. So think about what that was like. Now, for filming purposes, I've filmed you know documentaries about this sort of stuff, and I got the opportunity to crawl through one of these tunnels, you know, not one that had been dug by a child, but one that was sort of adult-sized, if you like. So I was wearing, you know, a sort of cotton boiler suit, a sort of onesie thing, uh, with my helmet with a lamp on it, and uh, and welly boots, and I was sh- shown down into this this opening. And I had to crawl through it, and I swear to you, it was no more than maybe two feet in diameter. And it wasn't, you know, a smooth, round pipe. It was it was all twists and turns, because the miner had just followed where the, where the malachite ore was within the, within the limestone. Um, and so sometimes, as I was crawling through, sometimes I had to turn on my side. And you're deep underground, remember. It's, it's many metres, many tens of metres under the surface. And sometimes I had to lie flat on my back with my nose brushing against the ceiling of the tunnel as I, as I wriggled and kicked and struggled through this, through this tunnel. 
if claustrophobia has a sound, <laughs> then it's the sound of your own Wellington boots scrabbling for purchase in a little tunnel as you try to not get stuck. I remember the on the surface when I was getting kitted up, uh, the woman who was uh, who had given me my boiler suit and was talking to me about it, she said, this sounds a little bit um, almost counterintuitive, she said, but if you feel yourself getting stuck, you mustn't panic. And she said, I know that, I know that doesn't make sense because you think you will panic if you get stuck. But she said, you have to remember that the first thing your body will do if you panic is it'll want to take a big deep breath because it'll be getting you ready to, for big effort. And she said, the last thing you want to do is make yourself any bigger. <laughs> so she said, if you panic, you'll breathe in a big breath. So if you're stuck before, you'll be even more stuck then. So it was with these sort of thoughts in my mind that I was down there. And it, it's one of those rare opportunities uh, that I've ever had where you, you really do feel as if you're at least absolutely in the same physical circumstances as somebody was in 4,000 years ago. You know, you think this is, this is the place and this is what it's like to be down here trapped in this little claustrophobic hole. Uh, and the only light down here is light that I've brought with me. So you get a real feeling of, you know, empathy for what those miners were going through. But it's just yet another example. You talk about, you know, there we go, look at the figures, you know, the biggest uh, man-made chamber anywhere on the planet of the prehistoric era, 1,700 tonnes of material, 10 million axe heads worth. That's how important that part of the British Isles was to the ancient world. That's how pricelessly valuable copper was. You know, they were prepared. To, imagine the life. I mean, these must have been people who were spending days, weeks, working down there in the dark at constant threat of cave-ins and, you know, the, the whole thing collapsing on them or, or injury or all the rest of it. That's how much it mattered to get hold of copper. And that's 4,000 years ago. People were thinking in that way. This material is so valuable that it's worth dying for. And we want as much of it as we can get. these early Bronze Age miners have been a similar physical size to people today? They're the same in every way. There's evidence, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of surprising, but there is evidence from, the, from examining skeletons across the millennia that far, the switch to farming made people smaller than they had been as hunters. You know, when you compare in, in places like, say, out in, the, say out in Greece, let's say, where where people made that transition from having been hunters to, to having been in on the early part of the transition to domesticating crops and animals. And so you can find sometimes human remains from before the farming and human remains from after. And for a thousand years or more after the transition to farming, people were smaller. Because the diet, things had gone downhill. Uh, you know, other writers like uh, Jared Diamond, for example... Uh, you know, he has he has characterised the switch to farming as as the greatest disaster that that the species ever inflicted upon itself. For lots of reasons. For a start, it means you've got to work every day. You know, you've got a set of chores, sun up, get to work, work all day, and then once it's too dark to work, you can go to your bed. And then you get up the next day and you do it all again. That's the daily grind that we've talked about before. But, but as well, 
from a nutritional point of view, it wasn't as good. There was easily accessible... If you had surplus grain, you could have plenty of bread and plenty of porridge. But it's not as... It doesn't grow as big a body as the diet that successful hunter-gatherers would have been taken advantage of. So they were a bit smaller. I mean, you know, when you compare uh, hunter Greeks to the first farming Greeks, they're about five inches shorter and they remain smaller for a thousand years than their, than their hunter predecessors. Uh, so there were, they would be people completely like us emotionally, mentally, in terms of their mental faculties. Uh, but on account of their diet by that point, they may have been physically smaller and of course they would have had they would have been strong you know on account of they lived lives that were very active very physical which is the difference really as everyone knows now you know people that try to fit in a bit of exercise in amongst their otherwise sedentary existence uh, you know it's hard work that that transforms you into something useful so these people because they lived lives of farming and mining and all of that they might have been small it might have been wee but they'd have been wiry <laughs> They'd have been physically, physically in pretty good shape, I would have thought. How did this place get its name? The feature in the landscape at Hlandudno is called the Great Orm. The mine is in the Great Orm. And uh, Orm is, uh, is Norse. It's a Viking word. The place today has a name that was applied to it by the Vikings more than a thousand years ago. Orm means worm, or, or more particularly, a serpent. So it's the great, it's the great worm, the big serpent. And if you're, if you're approaching that part of the North Welsh coast from the sea in a ship, like a Viking longship, the great orm is a, is a narrow snake of land that sticks out into the sea so it does look like a sea snake swimming on the surface so the message to get from that the fact that it carries if you like a foreign name is a is a, a signpost to the understanding that people were coming in search of and were attracted to the place because of its material wealth Would the Mediterranean ships that went to Cornwall for its tin come here on the same trip to pick up copper? Yes, for a start. The reason that people would have gone to such physical effort to get that stuff out of the ground uh, was because they could benefit. And they couldn't possibly have needed all that copper for themselves. They weren't just taking all that out for their own personal use. So the assumption is that the bulk of it is for export. Now, that could be that could be export over land within the British Isles, but there would also have been a demand for that copper. As this, as the centuries and the millennia went on, the same people that are, that need tin, they need copper, and and the the Great Orm mine at Llandudno, uh, in the ancient world, uh, was the biggest production centre for copper anywhere on the planet. That's where the most copper was coming out of the ground. So it would have exerted a kind of magnetic pull, without a shadow of a doubt. Did this huge copper mine make the area wealthy? 
Yeah, there's great wealth. And if you're in control of, of a resource, gold, diamonds, oil, look at the Middle East, look at, you know, anywhere there's a commodity that people want, if it happens to, if you have control of it, then you get wealthy. But people also get wealthy by having contact with you and exploiting the connection. You know, so if I establish, if I'm a thousand miles away from you with your copper, but I establish a network of points along the way so that I can get that copper or things made of copper or things made of bronze moving, if I can control, like the Silk Road, if I can control the route, so anybody along the line is potentially in a position to exploit uh, and, and become wealthy off the back of the copper. Th- that was the thing with with bronze. Later, people depended upon iron, and iron ore is more commonplace. There's more of it readily available. Copper and tin are thin on the ground. They always have been. And so bronze demanded sophisticated trading networks because most people don't live where either copper or tin are but everyone needs the bronze so it forces people to make contacts and make relationships because you've you've got to get to you've got to know a man who knows a man who can get you some copper that's the way it works so the the dependency upon bronze which is dependency on copper and tin forced people to be sociable so it's a funny thing you know it forced them to be people people they needed networks of connection and it was those networks that that made people rich and it was having the sophistication to organize and control the supply lines that made people wealthy and that were the, the scaffolding of a whole complicated civilization and society Funnily enough, the metallurgists call tin the sociable metal because it it mixes very readily and very easily with other metals. You know, obviously it mixes with copper to make bronze. And there's something pleasingly opposite about the idea of a sociable metal because, you know, you can't be a loner if you're in the business of bronze you need you need connections you need other people so bronze brought people together in a fundamental sense what would the phoenician merchants be bringing to trade for the great orms copper it's difficult it's difficult to say they'd be i mean obviously things that we didn't have that were available in the in say the mediterranean world you know would be things like wine uh, olives, olive oil, and of course, you know, you know, there was to a certain extent the ancient world would have had gold, and that's how trade works. I've got something you want, you've got something I want. Let's meet in the middle, and and swap. You know, it's very archaeologists and historians. This a debate and argue to this day about exactly when it would have become about money. You know, there is a, there's obviously an opportunity to trade all the time. You know, if you've got uh, whatever timber, or if you've got, or copper, or if you've got people, slaves, and then you can swap that for something else that someone else has got. You know, it's all down to people being having the. It's once they're farmers and they have surplus food. And they've got time because surplus food lets you specialise. So some people can specialise as 
metalsmiths or they can specialise as merchants, you know, because they're not having to spend every moment of every day sorting out food for tonight. So once, once they've got food organised and sorted and surplus, that's when, that's when societies become more sophisticated. Wherever you are, there'll be something you've got that somebody else doesn't have, and you swap it. But archaeologists can't decide, really, from, from about oh, the 6th century BC, there's coins moving around in the ancient world. You know, so coins are being made in gold or made in silver, Latterly, there's, there's also coins in bronze. So there's coinage, so there's transactions going on like that. I might turn up and I want ten slaves, human beings, but I've got a bag of gold coins. And so there's a, a, a money transaction goes on. I'll now take the slaves and you take the money. But in answer to your question, in the earlier days, there would always have been the opportunity to swap trade. Same thing. Whatever you've got from your part of the ancient world for whatever I've got. And in, in that part of Wales, it was copper. In Cornwall, it was tin. That was what they had. And they'd have swapped it for whatever, for wine, for oil, for other things that they needed but couldn't otherwise get their hands on. That's how trade works. In an age like today, when new technologies seem to come and go in the blink of an eye. The fact that bronze remained dominant for around 2,000 years is extraordinary, isn't it? Uh-huh. It's difficult to get your head around, isn't it? A kind of a stability. It's one of the great mysteries of prehistoric archaeology is exactly why bronze stopped being the centre of everyone's world. Because it did. And, and it, that didn't happen overnight. But eventually, iron entered the frame. And there wasn't much iron around to begin with. Uh, and, you know, you've got, you've got people who've been using bronze for centuries and centuries. And then this new metal starts coming in. And it's not immediately obvious that it was better. You know, you need higher temperatures to get iron so that it's liquid, so that you can pour it in the way that you can with bronze. Bronze becomes that liquid thing that you can pour into a cast, into a mould, at a lower temperature than does iron. And to begin with, when people were working iron, they could only get it to the point where it was like, where a smith could hammer it into shape. They could get it white hot or cherry red and then hit it with a hammer, like a, like a, like a blacksmith does. So it was, it was difficult. And it's not immediately apparent, and it's, it also it doesn't instantly give you a better tool. You know, bronze is a fantastic metal. If you break it, if you're ploughing with a bronze ploughshare or if you're using a bronze sword and it breaks, you have to then take the, the broken bits and make them liquid again and recast them. You've got to go back to square one. An advantage that you have with an iron sword is that if it, if it breaks into two bits, you can give it to the blacksmith, he can heat the two bits up, put them together and hammer them into one again. So, so iron's a bit easier to handle. It's a bit more cooperative. And, it, and any village would have had a blacksmith who could, who could keep everybody's uh, tools and weapons you know, in one piece and, and in good working order. But after bronze having been 
so key to people's lives. It's what brought people together. It was the foundation of, of a complicated network of uh, trading links and all the rest of it. It's difficult to, to understand exactly what happened to bronze. You know, archaeologists have speculated that, for example, there might have been um, a kind of a glut, that, that, that there may at some point uh, have been overproduction of it. And if you've got overproduction of any commodity, the price drops. So people have suggested, I wonder if they were just making so much bronze that eventually there was no value in it. It was kind of, you know, it was a ten a penny. And then there's been, been speculation that maybe the quality dropped out of it. Uh, you know, that people were making, people were making uh, bronze, but it was to a lower standard. But the archaeological evidence doesn't really back up either of those theories. It doesn't really explain why you would suddenly, after bronze being so useful for so long, why it would be replaced by anything. And then other people have speculated that it, it might have been a simple kind of a, a loss of trust. You know how the, the money in your pocket, to an extent, it's based on everyone's confidence in it. You know, the pound sterling or the US dollar or whatever, or the euro, it, it requires us all to be confident in it. And if, and human beings are fickle and strange and things ha happen in the market, we know that stocks and shares, you know, it fluctuates all the time. And a lot of the time it's to do with confidence. So likewise, archaeologists have wondered if there wasn't just at some point, at some crucial moment, a loss of confidence in bronze. And also, because of all the things we've just been discussing about bronze, the fact that it made some people very rich and powerful, there may have been only a few limited opportunities to be rich and powerful based on bronze. And that that situation might have sort of fossilised into something that nobody could get in on. You know, the people that were, the people in Llandudno, the people in Cornwall, that certain people were just rich and powerful. And if you were on the outside of that, if you lived somewhere else, you could never get in. You know, you could never get a foot in the door to get in amongst the rich and the powerful. And that might have inspired eventually people thinking, stuff it, stuff your bronze. <laughs> Do you know? They think, well, we'll use this iron. To begin with, it's going to be a bit awkward. It's not as pretty. You know, it doesn't look as good as bronze. Uh, it's a bit more workmanlike, and we'll have to work with it in a different way. But we can get our hands on it. We can get to it. You know, there's iron ore around. We can, let's just do it that way. And gradually people... And in, the, in those circumstances, with maybe some of the population looking to iron because it was giving them new opportunities, maybe that helped to break the wider confidence in bronze. You know, so there's, you know, it's, fa it's just fascinating to speculate that these sort of modern-sounding tribulations, like the values of commodities rising and falling and affecting whole economies and whole societies, it's fascinating to speculate that some of that was happening. You know, two thousand years ago, two and a half thousand years ago, when it, you know when people were kind of turning their backs on bronze and and really iron, eventually, iron eventually it takes a long time, but eventually it's all about iron and the and the stranglehold that bronze had had on everything for so long was was over. Bronze is a bit of a forgotten metal these days. But given it was so dominant for so long, it must have been good at what it did. 
Yeah, no, it's so good. It's so hard. Uh, some of the bronze that archaeologists recover from the ancient world, when it's analysed by metallurgists, it's so good that we don't, we can't make bronze that good. So the implication is that the the bronze smiths had got so good at making bronze that they knew certain things about how to make bronze that we've forgotten or that have been forgotten since that time. So they were so sophisticated in how they were making that metal that their version of it was better even than our version of it, which also goes to explain why it was so useful for so long. It's a very, very good metal. It's not inferior. It's, it's not inferior to, to steel or iron in certain ways, depending on what you're using it for. But, it, but its its weakness is the fact that there's not enough of the of the commodity, and it's not evenly spread around. And it, it would discourage certain people because they're thinking, "Oh, we've got to get bronze, and we don't live anywhere near the tin. We don't live anywhere near the copper. So we're never going to get rich. There's got to be another way." And there's got to be another. Why should we be dependent upon these people and their and the bronze? Isn't there another way? And then, gradually, iron becomes the answer to that that conundrum. And it and in that way, it it, it just it, it's like a change of the direction of the wind. It just it just changed the world. And a world that had been all about bronze for longer than anyone could possibly remember, just one the day came when oh, actually, we're more about iron now. It's now mostly about Ireland, and off we went into the modern world. When you're at the mines today, can you imagine them working at full tilt thousands of years ago? Well, yes, because they're on such a scale. They're so big. You know, that chamber, that underground chamber, it's like a a cathedral-sized space. It's huge. It's a vast underground, hollowed out by people working with bone and stone and you're confronted by the fact that it's lots and lots of people working very hard for a very, very long time so you get a, you get the feeling of how much it mattered, it wasn't just something trifling and you know, something that you know people set about for a few days or a few weeks, they were at it for decades and centuries because it was so useful and of course, the copper copper extraction was there in the modern era. There was so much malachite, which is the rock from which you make copper. There was so much uh, there that it was still worthwhile to have modern industry there, right up into the uh, into our time, extracting copper there. You know that that part of the of the world, that part of Wales, was very very rich in copper, and it galvanised people and energised people for thousands of years. You know, once they, once they found it, they kind of, in a sense, they never let it drop. And do we know whether, the, whether there was a, an industry there to use it, you know, like to make axe heads and, and the like? Yes, there's evidence of smelting. You have to use heat to get copper from malachite and that the evidence of that is there and in the surrounding area you know cop- copper does sometimes occur like gold you know you sometimes get little nuggets of it actually pure native copper maybe in a stream or, or lying on the surface it will occur like that 
uh, but mostly it's within malachite, which is, um, if it's on a cliff face and it's exposed to the sea and the rain, it, you get these streaks of verdigris. So that's how people would have spotted it, probably. They would have seen it from the sea. It's wonderful to think of this part of Wales being such an important cog in the developing Bronze Age, isn't it? Well, gradually as time went on, yes, there's just no doubting it that the busiest source of copper in the ancient world at certain times was at the Great Orm. Nowhere else in the ancient world was so much copper coming out of the ground. Castles, commerce and travel have been writ large at the port of Dover for thousands of years. In sight of the White Cliffs, some 3,000 years ago, a beautiful boat plied its trade, a craft that today, quite simply, has the power to take your breath away. It's the oldest known seagoing boat in the whole world. It's the Dover Boat. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. Check out my Instagram account, Neil Oliver Love Letter. And to ensure you get each new episode of the podcast as it goes live, don't forget to subscribe, write a review and share with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. The music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar, CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance was taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios. Photography is the work of Neil R. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.